It is just past 18 hours, 31 minutes and 42 seconds East African time. Time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. This being Wednesday, the 14th of September, 2022. Hamjambo Nakaribuni. Hello and welcome. With more than a third of Africa's heads of state represented at our presidential swearing-in ceremony yesterday, from the Seychelles, Tanzania, Somalia, Eswatini, Chad, Mozambique, the Saharawi Republic, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, the DRC, the Comoros, Ethiopia, Guinea-Bissau, Malawi, Burundi, Uganda, Congo, Djibouti, Rwanda, and South Sudan, not to mention emissaries from elsewhere. It was a particularly good moment to feel like a citizen of Africa and the world, and a trigger to think about continental and global concerns. One such concern is food security, which, as defined by the United Nations Committee on World Food Security, means that all people at all times have physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their food preferences and dietary needs for an active and healthy life. My mystery guest has had the words United Nations attached to his name for much of his professional career, with UN stints in the UK, the USA, the Maldives, Sudan, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, the DRC, and Côte d'Ivoire. His current job has him in Nairobi with food security in Africa at its core. Now, what should I ask him first? How about turning to you, kind sir? I dare say Africa has been around for a long time. So just why this sudden preoccupation with food security in Africa? Well, good evening. So I think the first thing that we have to think about is about food. People need food to eat. It's one of the, it's the first preoccupation almost of every human being. But of course, as you say, human beings have been around for ages in Africa. So what's what's been changing? So if you just look at the last 20 years, the population of Africa has moved from 800 something million people 20 years ago to 1.37 billion people today. And it's going to fit double between now and 2050. So that's a lot of mouths uh, to feed. And that's why we have to think at a very fundamental and basic level about why food and food security is so important. And I think your, your definition nails it. Now, let's think about where we are today. So about 20% of the population in Africa is hungry, just hungry. 280 million people are hungry. They go to bed feeling hungry. They wake up feeling hungry. And 420 million people are living in poverty. So we're not just even thinking about hunger. You may be able to fill your belly, but you're still poor. So that's a very, very good place to start when we think about um, food security. And rather crazily, Africa, which has so much potential um, in food, in agriculture, it spends huge amounts of money every year, about 70 billion, I believe, in importing food. Only about 16 billion of that comes from other African countries. So the rest of that food is coming from abroad. It's coming from Brazil. It's coming from Europe, Russia, Ukraine. So Africa, which should be feeding itself and then feeding the world, is actually having to spend huge amounts of money on importing food, M money which could go into education, could go into health, and so on. The third thing I want to say is, we're talking about diets. We're talking about what it is that we need to live happy and he healthy lives. So it costs about 350 shillings to have um, a healthy diet on average across Africa. Now, 85% of people can't, uh, can't afford that 350 shillings per day. So those other 85% who are below that line are eating unhealthily. That leads to a situation, we've talked about the, you know, the number of people who are hungry, 
But equally so, we also see, even see eating-related problems, right? So we see, um, even in Nairobi or in urban areas in Kenya, we find 60% of people to be overweight or obese, despite that they're poor, despite the fact that they're not eating a proper diet. So when you add all those things up, you see the very distinct scale of the challenges uh, which are in front of us. There are two things that I'd like to have clarified. One of them, again, let me be continentalistic, is that there's always this idea that Africa is somehow lagging behind the rest of the world. And if anything breaks out, if it's AIDS, it must have started in Africa. If it's COVID, it must have started in Africa. So is this another instance where we're being picked out, where there are others who are in a worse situation? Hunger is a global problem. Uh, food insecurity is a global problem. I think Ag Africa has a very particular challenge in front of us. Um, but I think the main point I would say here is that these are not outsiders' perspectives or challenges. This is what the people of Africa say. Nobody likes being hungry. Nobody likes being poor. And they say that to their politicians and their, to, to their leaders. So African leaders, African politicians, African governments are the ones who have said food security has got to change. And they've actually come together continentally, as you say, to say we're going to work together to make this happen. We're going to set certain targets. We're going to move this problem forward. Because in the end, there's no global region which has ever developed without changing things on agriculture, right? And on agriculture and food. So the most recent ones which we could really look at, if you look at China, China moved 350, 400 million people out of poverty in the last three or four decades. A huge chunk of that was change, change around food, change around agriculture, change around the rural economy, moving to cities and so on. So I think African leaders who have an eye on the future um, say we've got to do something about this. And uh, certainly one of the, the points of inspiration for me was Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan was the African leader who saw the food crisis coming back in 2008 and said we've got to do something about this. We can't have Africa, exactly as you say, marked out as being different. We need to be able to take control of our destiny and to change the way in which we think about and produce food. I'm going to come back to that notion of change, sir. But I, again, as a sort of selfish individual, I see, is this an instance of the strong helping the weak? Because if I take myself as an example, and there are soaring food prices, I will go to the mall, I would go to the supermarket and note with horror that the cost of tomatoes has somewhat increased. But I dare say, not with pride, I still feel capable of paying those pr increased prices. I don't particularly know what's happening to my brethren in the north of Kenya, where I hear there's famine. I don't particularly, well, I, I, I do care, but do I really care that um, one third of Pakistan is submerged under water and people are having a frightful time? Do I really care that there are forest fires in California destroying homes close to Hollywood? So I'm always going to be a bit skeptical as to who is going to lead the struggle for change. It's certainly not going to be me if I dare admit that. We all have our different roles. But uh, no, I, I think, um, you know, in the end, you've got to go back to the priorities which have been set, right, for what, what's going to change the world. And uh, I think it's always a good place to start with the sustainable development goals. We're supposed to achieve them by 2030, right? Got to end hunger, end poverty, all of these very high-sounding goals. And then if you're a government... You've got a hell of a uh, set of challenges in, in, in terms of the priorities which you're going to set. So I think we first do put the responsibility on governments. Governments take that responsibility. That's what they've been put there for by their people. Uh, but it can't just be left to government because food is something that affects us all. I mean, John, if you if you woke up in the morning and there was no food in the fridge because your favorite foods had been had you know basically been uh, you know, sort of run out of the supermarket. You're going to, to have a problem. I was trying to suggest that so far I have no 
real fear of that happening. I personally. You personally, no. Mm. But um, if you look at the huge numbers of people in Kenya who are struggling today in how do they buy their, their food, you know, how, how, how do they cope with a 100% increase in the price of vegetable oil, for example, or ugali? Those people care. And that's a lot of people. That's most of the people in this country. So that's a huge force for change in itself. Now, it's a, it's a force for change because people are afraid and because they're struggling. But everybody wants things to be better for their children, for their communities. And I think it's that, that hope for a better future, a better development. I think that's what drives all of this. Because in the end, you can make other choices. But in the end, what really comes back to, can we make things better for the next generation? You said earlier that uh, in China, if I'm listening carefully, because this is not an area of expertise for me, so I am listening, and I'm listening carefully, moving 300 million people in China to become food secure. And then I say, I for one, you know full well that I'm a Kenyan. At most, maybe there's 60 million of us. Um, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> is that... Uh, self sort of criticism and self-flagellation what are we doing wrong well it doesn't necessarily mean you have to say you have to be doing something wrong individually so let's look at the problems which are facing us this year right because we've we've had actually huge progress across africa huge progress in kenya over the last let's say 20 30 years right so things are not the same today as they were 20 years ago that said if you look at where we are today the scientific evidence that climate change is changing the way in which agriculture is done, the way in which food is produced, is un unarguable. The, the the reports which are written by the UN um, on this, which are all of the world scientists coming together and they fight like crazy over what they're going to say. So this is not just some form report. They prove beyond all doubt that agriculture is already changing because of climate change. It's it's with us today, all right? So that's number one. Number two, we're, we are coming out of the end of the COVID pandemic. We already saw this crisis coming at the end of last year. It changed everything. It changed the way in which people live, work, eat. Um, the way the factories get run, you know, these just-in-time uh, production mechanisms, all of those things adjusted to the new reality of the pandemic. And then we came out of the pandemic and suddenly everything started to stretch and to break and, and so on. And even as we went into the beginning of this year, we saw prices starting to shoot up. Companies just couldn't get hold of the things which they needed to make, uh, to make food. So the third thing is agriculture is difficult. It takes time to change. African farmers have really struggled over time to get what they need to do their job and to, to run viable businesses. And we can go into that if you like. But I think it's those three things together. You have to look at what's happening today in the special circumstances, but also how do you change things much more seriously and deeply in the long run? I, I've been hearing you, not that I understand you entirely, <laughs> but there's... Um, Sir, um, again, uh, allow the layman's questions, please. In this, I'm, I'm going to look at problem areas and my understanding and just throw some words at you, uh, the things that are perceived to be bad. One of the things that are meant to be bad, if I go back to my village, maybe what's been left to me is at most two hectares of land, and uh, that's mine, and I'm going to split it if they so wish amongst my children, and I have cousins. and I So this idea that I, I read about, that the small-scale farmer represents the future, surely not when I drive a similar distance towards Paris and I'm taking a school trip of children and I look outside the window and so many yards, miles of road have been dedicated to potatoes. And I don't see that being replicated here. Uh, and then I'm going to draw you on this, uh, one at a time, I'm going to draw you on this idea of uh, GMO, good or bad, and then the idea of uh, maybe if we had better seeds, better way of doing it, we would produce more. So are you some kind of guru who can give a sort of guru-esque <laughs> clarification on all these issues? The small-scale farmer is not a solution to our problems, number one. True or false? It is make, fal it, make it bigger. It, it is true that they are a major solution to our problems. 
a major solution. Yes. Okay. Let's be positive here. Well, uh, (laughs) no, I think we can agree that um, subsistence farmers, those who just somehow scratch a living off the land and just enough to eat um, and barely stay alive and get by, I think nobody would would want to romanticize that. It's immensely difficult and grinding poverty and so on. But small-scale farmers, you can be hugely prosperous as a small-scale farmer if you're given some of the opportunities that other people in other parts of the world have. Now, I think the problem with African smallholder farmers is that they haven't had those opportunities. They don't get access to the things which you need to be a farmer, right? So they, get, they make do and they try to do what they can, but they have to struggle mightily, right, to get even a tenth of the same kind of production that a similar-sized farm would in, I don't know, in France or the UK or, or, or whatever. So I, I think we have to think very much about how do we make these hundreds of millions of people give them the opportunity to be prosperous, right? Now, if suddenly hundreds of millions of people start to become more prosperous, it means that they can send their kids to school, they can buy medicine, all of those kinds of things. It may be that over time, lots of those smallholder farmers come together and make a middle-sized farm or a, or a large. And I think there's a, there's a role for both. So I, I think it's not uh, black and white, but look at where Africans are today. They're smallholder farmers, the vast majority. So let's not hope for another world uh, as our as our magic bullet, let's think about how to make smallholder farmers prosperous. Can we think about a regime that might do a sort of Chinese cultural revolution thing and take over huge tracts of land and uh, let them be owned by the state and let them produce the tomatoes and get rid of African tradition? I think ex- there's not a whole lot of successful examples of that happening in other parts of the world. Uh, you can think of North Korea, for example, where maybe it could be argued that that hasn't worked particularly well. Where China succeeded was by empowering smallholder farmers. So they, they turned almost completely around in terms of agriculture and said, OK, look at where the energy, the enthusiasm, the innovation is going to be. Make that work. Right. And certainly it had a huge effect. And it kick-started the agricultural revolution in China. You can say the same thing about India. You can say the, thing about, the same thing about Vietnam. You could say the same thing 150 years ago about the UK. So I think the pathway to giving people the choices and the, the ability to access the things they need, that's, that's the magic, magic bullet, if you will. The, to have the temerity, kind sir, to... Uh, I go to my people in the village. I love them. I mention frequently and say, folks, we've got to plant something else. We haven't always done the cassava and the maize. And the, uh, and now, in order to have more nutritious diets, we ought to plant something else. And dare I say, it's something that we can sell. So why not um, turn some of our land over to, say, watermelons? And if only we can drive them across a certain distance. People love these things. They're a staple at every wedding. And soon, you'll be making an income. But the poor deers, once they've planted the watermelon, uh, there's nobody to transport it to the local no. town. And uh, dare I say it, they don't have the uh, pro box or whatever style car to take it there. But the state is not playing any role in empowering them. So I've, I've seen the light. I want a small scale farm, but I can't take my produce to where I wish it to be. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it, John. I mean, that's one of the main things that we see across Africa that needs to change. Farmers don't have access to market. So imagine you slave away and you're risking drought and climate change and goodness knows what, and then you produce a, a harvest which surplus to your needs and you want to sell it, and there's nowhere to go. So what do you do? You learn a very tough lesson in those circumstances unless something changes. So if we're talking about practicalities, you have to give farmers access to market, which means they have to be able to get food out of the ground or off the tree or wherever it happens to be, off into storage safely. They need to be able to process it, and then they need to be able to get it out of there. So governments can do an awful lot. It's not just governments, but governments can do an awful lot to build those markets, to give people access. They can encourage the private sector to come in, come together, and and, and farmers then have to can meet that need which the private sector brings to them. So that's where your solution lies. You can build markets. So again, if you look at what's changed in Kenya over the last 20 years, it's changed beyond recognition in in the most prosperous areas of the country. Now, we can argue about the north where there, perhaps there's been more challenges like that. But um, you can 
help markets to develop. But farmers need to see that. If they can't see where their produce is going to go, then they, they won't do it. They're, they're, they're going to protect themselves. Where do you stand in this debate against what are called genetically modified GMO? I don't know what the O stands for. I'll stand for something. <laughs> but uh, the, the, but the, again, let me tell you what people are thinking. They're thinking if somebody would say, you know, in the bad old days, this is what a tomato looked like, a real tomato. Now this is a sort of squidgy type, or this one is 100 times larger than I remember it as a young lad. Uh, and this idea that what is coming in through science is by its very nature bad for us. And the whole thing is that Africa has to retain its pristine values. We will grow the things that our ancestors did. We will not subject our soils to fertilizer because this is the terrible imposition of the white man's ways. We're going to kill our soils. And this is a, an ongoing debate. So I think it's true pronged. This idea of what are GMOs, explain them to me in this little segment that we have together, and then whether in fact it is a good thing to let science encroach upon age-old traditions. Science has been put to work for human beings for as long as we've been standing up upright, I think, and African farmers need science to be brought to them in the way that is appropriate for them. Now, we've seen problems when Science, if you will, gets foisted on farmers which they don't need or is not appropriate for the circumstances on on the ground. So I think um, GMOs are, are obviously a very hot debate. Um, there's a great deal of resistance globally to GMOs. I think you could probably say in some countries... Sorry, go back. What, what does that O stand for? GM? Oh, I'm afraid you're going to ask me that. <laughs> genetically modified organisms. Organisms, this okay, is. Okay, let, yes. let, <laughs> I don't weird scientific things that come out of the soil. Okay. Yeah. No, no. So G GMOs are basically where they're inside a lab. There has been a... Um, a um, I'm not a scientist, so I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. It's, it's basically where in the lab the genetic structure of a of an organism uh, gets gets adjusted, right? right. Yeah. So that that is only one way in which science can be brought to bear on agriculture and on seeds. We're talking about seeds here, right? So the vast majority of seeds over the over the decades, over the centuries, has always come from when you breed seeds together, right? So you, in the you know 100, 200, 300 years ago in Africa, you would have had farmers who noticed that that variety does very well in drought and this variety gives you a big boost and they put them together and a new variety um, emerges right this is natural if you will natural breeding so that's a tale as old as time so where i think we see the greatest results in africa you know we we, we are faced with these new challenges right we are faced with drought we're faced with new diseases with pests and so on Farmers see the possibilities that can come to them when you have the right seed for the right place at the right time at the right price. So let me give you an, let me turn back to China again because China is the most recent example of a country which has made that huge leap forward. I visited uh, the rice laboratories in uh, I think it was Changsha in China. The father of rice through natural breeding, right? So not GMO, increased yields five times. The same seed could produce five times more um, rice in terms of weight and yield and so on than, you know, than, than, than original. It transformed China. It was extraordinary. So it, that's one example. But, you know, you, if, if you're looking at a... Now, let's turn back to Africa. If we see unpredictable weather patterns, if you see the rains, not as we've seen here in Kenya so often, where the rains don't come at the right time or the expected time, they don't last as long as you need... Some of these new varieties, which are so important for these farmers, and farmers, believe me, they'll, if they can get them, they'll go after them. They, it means that you know, their crop will ripen in half the time. So it will ripen during the period that it's raining, and they, they're not going to be bemoaning the fact that the rains have stopped. So it's that kind of change, and it's that kind of opportunity that African farmers have often been missing. So I think the main thing is, you know, nobody should be forcing an, a, a farmer to be doing anything, right? It's up to them what they do. But it's, can you give them the opportunity and the choices that they, for their circumstances, because they know their land and their, their place, can you give them what, the chance to do what they need that's right for their, for their farm? 
two more hard luck stories which we can cover in three minutes hopefully for the mm. next break one of them is uh, look at the is it sri lanka mm. again just uh, hearing uh, these people were told that they'd been growing rice for centuries um, frightful outsiders came and told them to and then next minute their crop failed and and then you know government failed and total social collapse other scenario I go back and they say oh my goodness you know these terrible things have happened I am being and we'll go on to seeds in particular in the next segment I was told to buy this seed but I can only use it once it's very expensive and once it's all over I have to go and buy it all over again so the traditional seeds that I was using have been replaced and the government is forcing me to buy seed that I can't afford. What uh, old wives tales? Or what? <laughs> There's two different questions here. Yes, I uh, know. John. So I, let, let me yeah. let me start with the first one. Yeah, and yeah, we answer the first one, then we'll have a break, then you can answer the second one. Sri Lanka is a cautionary tale, and I think anybody who cares about soil health and what happens in a country when you make the wrong choices have to pay attention to what's happened there. So you need nutrients in the soil if you're going to grow crops. Simple point, right? So you can get that from fertilizers, whether they're organic or, or mineral. And we can carry on afterwards. I see you looking at the clock. Yes. But the point is, can you, can you find a way of putting nutrients into the ground? Or there are multiple ways in which you can do that. Some of them work in some places and not in others. But the point is, you have to put the nutrients in the ground. About 40% of African soil is degraded. It's got the highest level of degradation in the world. That must be uh, reversed if you're going to change agriculture and food in Africa. Okay, so let us stop there. Then we'll return to my bugbear about awful seeds. And sir, I'm sure you're not used to being in um, FM stations every day, but you'll agree that we have just about the best signature tune of all. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, <laughs> but um, going back to seeds, our dear friend seeds, our dear friend seeds, are we again the victims of an imperialist plot to extort as much out of it as possible? This idea that our agriculture is being manipulated by people whom I won't name that they stand to gain if they control because it's a, Africa and its millions are you know just ripe for huge capitalistic profit so I'm not going to name names but between friends I think you know, you, can you address that topic yeah certainly so I think you need to follow if you will follow the money now these uh, seed companies uh, in the past were dominated by almost only international uh, sort of conglomerates. But in the last 20 years, we've seen a seed revolution in Africa. We've seen African researchers working with African farmers to de develop new varieties that farmers want. And it's been African seed companies who have been de developed to breed these seeds and to replicate them and to make them available so that when you actually put them into the ground, they germinate and they grow and they give you a crop. So I think the reality that we have today is, and this is one of the transformational points that we see, go after what works for Africa. Go with African researchers. Go after what African farmers say that they want and the kind of attributes that they need. And if you are able to do that, and farmers want to be able to buy high-yielding varieties, climate-resistant varieties, uh, bug-resistant varieties, and again, I'm not talking about GMOs. I'm talking about this natural process of, um, of breeding. Um, then I think they should have the right to, to, to buy them. And certainly from my own experience, when I've gone out with my colleagues to the farms, you know, the, the idea that, um, you, you know, I remember speaking to a group of uh, women farmers in Kiambu. And they showed us, here's the plot, where we were able to get these uh, varieties, um, which are double yielding, basically. And here's the plot where, you know, it's a 40-year-old variety, and, you know, very small, very... Uh, well, sad looking, really. And and the idea that was suggested to them is, do you want to go back to that? They just laughed at me like, you, you're, you're an idiot. Are you serious? I'm a farmer. There's only so much time I have. My hands, my children, <laughs> you know, we, we only have so much energy and money. 
So to, to be able to survive as a family, we want to be able to get the most out of our land. So if they don't use those new, new varieties, they, of course they can use the old uh, varieties which you can replicate at home and so on. But it means two, three, four times the amount of work, maybe two, three, four times the amount of fertilizer. So these are the choices that farmers make. But farmers are smart. They will, they will look at what's in front of them. And if they get that choice, I know I'm banging on a lot about choice, but if they get that choice, you'll see where they will go. But choice, implic- the idea of education, I'm not entirely sure because I, I make the sort of, you know, uh, as all as we all Kenyans do, we all make the trip up country or down country mm. or cross country to go back to our roots. And I, I oh gosh, maybe I don't see people being educated in the area of choice. I don't see it happening. I see a few sort of enlightened individuals uh, who've been abroad and I see the rich <laughs> becoming yeah. richer. Yeah. You know what I'm suggesting? They're the one. I, I don't think that your grouping in Kiambu represented the great mass of Kenyan farmers. I think you'd have to think about what the great mass of Kenyan farmers are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the big problems that we had coming out of the 80s and the 90s is that, um, you know, through structural adjustment and so on, we saw uh, extension systems, such as farming knowledge, right? Uh, that those really got knocked back and, und- and the funding cut from them. And as you say, you need knowledge and education, right? So that's actually when we started to see some falling back of some of the gains which had been made. So I think the critical thing is, how do you bring knowledge and experience and understanding to farmers? Now, farmers know a lot themselves. So a lot of the solution is about being able to share what you know with other farmers, right? So I think the great opportunity that we see in in Kenya, in in African countries, certainly the, the, the leaping forward, the leapfrogging, if you will, is that um, technology can help you. You know, we, you have mobile phones now, and that allows you to do things that you didn't before. But there's no substitute for real-life human beings. So being able to put people next to farmers rather than often the district, you know, provincial capital or whatever, that's quite crucial. You need to, you need to have farmers who are close to, um, you know, if you will, extension workers who can learn, you know, what works here, what works there, and so on. Again, if we could talk sir, about a bit of semantics here, the, the use of this word farmer, mm. and, I, and I, I did have the audacity to, to suggest that you know we were a microcosm of the continent and mentioned all these places. So I don't know what's happening in the Sahrawi Republic or or Sudan, but farmer, sir, I I don't see my relations in the village seeing themselves as farmers for the simple reason that when they go out with their djembe and their hoe early in the morning and they're going to dig as this is the verb that we use we're going digging and we must have this digging occur before the sun comes out at midday in all its force so again i have very laborious very hard-working people whom i'm i'm sort of busy snoring and when I wake up, I find that my aunties have been at it. They left at four o'clock in the morning before cockcrow, mm. and they come back. But the idea is that they wait for the rains to come. They have the same crop that they've um, planted from time immemorial, and they only get really stuffed when <coughs> the rain comes at an unawaited hour. And just when the seeds are beginning to germinate, <laughs> it's like, boomph, yeah. uh, it's rained over. So they've lost the crop. But the punchline here is that they're not farming to sell, they're farming to feed their families, full stop. So the understanding, sorry, I, I'm sorry if I digress, the idea is that a farmer, say my, my father, my, my brother in the UK is a farmer, it's somebody who makes a living out of farming. Mm-hmm. But in 90% of Africa, surely we don't have farmers. We have people growing food for themselves to eat. Yes, I think. Um, so when are you going to when are you going to change that mindset so that they perceive themselves as people doing a job that earns money rather than the right to life? I think probably. I mean, obviously, in many countries there was a, a um, you know decades and decades, generations of farmers like the ones you describe, right? Where mm. who are just working like crazy. Who, who exist to this day? I'm trying subsistence to farmers, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, just enough to eat, mm. but that's not 
I think, the limit of people's hopes and aspirations. People want to make money. They want they want to be able to sell. Uh, you you mentioned uh, watermelons or yeah, yeah. you know avocados, and I think you know most farmers are are trying to balance you know their time, their money, their energy. They're going to say, okay, I need to I need to eat, but I need to sell things in the market. I need to be able to get to market. Um, and they're also looking for signals, right, from outside. What's what's good? What what will people buy? And so on. So I think there's all sorts of calculations thinking which farmers are doing is like how can i get things better for myself and my family that's the cry of all generations wherever you are whether you're a farmer or not why should farmers be any different they want something better for their children so how do they do that they build their business farming is a business in the end now hopefully you get past the point where you're just able to feed yourself because feeding yourself will not educate will not buy medicine will not you know give you the things that you need a refrigerator a tv all the things which we we may take for granted here in in Nairobi. So farming is a business. How do you help the business work? But our point of departure in the discussion, sir, was that we were going to do the Chinese sort of uh, magic trick and suddenly uh, have enough produce of various sorts and nutritions and to feed everybody in the land, to feed everybody on the continent. And um, with respect, you haven't persuaded me mm. that the individual lacking an education that points to things like fertilizers and seeds is going to make this great leap forward on their own. Therefore, trick question, is that in your experience as somebody who guides developmental processes, does the education system in these countries that you've been to, Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone, forget Kenya for a moment, where people are educating people to know about farming in the same way that they know about yoga, so help me with the question. <laughs> the question is, we are ill-educated to change because I took your word change as the, as the, as the starting point. You said change is what did it. Hmm. And I'm saying you haven't persuaded me of the spark that's going to bring about this change. No, so Maybe I, I wasn't listening I think if properly. You, I think if you leave things alone, you, the chances of change happening, because we, we need to change, think about food completely differently, right? I think this is the whole point. If we're going to respond to the threat of climate change and so on, fine. Egged on by whom? Well, that, I, it, but it has to be egged on. Yeah. It has to be, government has to lead. Yes. It's never worked without government pointing in the right direction, right? So yes. African governments have committed to doing that. Some have done it more successfully than others. So we always, for example, we look to Ethiopia as a good example. Now in Ethiopia, they were able to triple production amongst you know smallholder farmers or subsistence farmers that was a very very big deal and there were reasons why that happened and are you going to add that soon after they started a war well, <laughs> which goes on there, to this day there are complicated reasons for wars but yeah. certainly in terms of the achievement yeah. of, of of agriculture it was it was huge and right. continues to be um government number one number two um bring research and science to market if you don't bring it to market there's going to be no change number three you've got to have the private sector in. You should not be a private, uh, afraid of the private sector, which is sometimes what you hear in the development community, all those bad private sector guys. Private sector is, is everything from small SME entrepreneurs to bigger companies. Um, but there's never been a single case of successful change in agriculture with the, without the private sector bringing in the millions and the billions which you need to transform uh, agriculture. That's what still has to happen here. Now, the point is, is that you have to join it all up. And whereas in the past you'd think about agriculture as just production that happens in the farm and you, somehow it gets to the city, that's, that doesn't work. That's not going to bring the nutritious uh, diets. It's not going to join things up in the way that it has to be joined up. For example, we need to think much more seriously about diversifying our crops. So right now we depend on uh, wheat, uh, rice, and maize um, across Africa, um, both in terms of what we consume I think in many places we've forgotten how to eat some of the old things that we we used to take for granted. So we need to see much sweet, more sweet potatoes, cassava, sweet potatoes, cassava, cassava. sorghum, millet. Yes, you yes. know all of the, all of these things, right? Yes. Um, so th that is the role of government to encourage you know that diversification, and, yeah, and towards vegetables and beans. You know, beans are huge in terms of putting um, nutrients back in the ground. So. That doesn't happen by itself. So you've got to have those things coming together. We've seen proof that it can happen, right? I've talked about Ethiopia and Ghana. There was um, planting for food and jobs. That employed 5 million people. It transformed diets. It was huge. It was at scale. It changed the lives of millions of farmers and, and entrepreneurs. So it, it shows it's possible. 
If you just leave it alone, nothing will change. Okay, another preoccupation is this whole idea of, um, now that the choice has been made, this idea of nationalism. And again, remember my initial image of the all our 20 African countries joined together. Uh, we talk about the Ugandans and we say, oh, I'll tell you what, I, the Ugandans, they've got their matoke. You know, if you throw a seed into the ground, nothing goes wrong there because they, they've just got food all around them. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about we talk about the other as that's the way they are. That's where that's the way the Sudanese are. But there are places in Africa like South Sudan and DRC Congo, which have the capacity to be businesslike and be the breadbasket of the continent. So could you comment on the measures that are being taken to take a continental view of the problem instead of a nationalistic one to your in your experience is the preposition I'm looking for. Mm. So um, I think one of the best things that happened was the African governments came together under a thing called CADAP, C-A-A-D-P, and the Malibu Declaration. This is where African countries hold each other accountable uh, for changing things. So one of the targets is um, governments should spend 10% of, of uh, GNP on, on ag, on agriculture. If you're going to transform the sector, this is what you've got to do. So I think that kind of learning from each other and working together is really important. Second, really important area that you've probably heard about it, the African free trade continental area. Um, that it should be possible to trade easier inside Africa than with Europe or North America or Brazil. Right. Well, we're going on to the program of solutions. You're, okay, you're there we go. Words out of my, okay. we'll, we'll have a break. A break, a break, a break with my beloved studio manager, JFK, is right <laughs> next to me. A break, please, JFK. So it's 19 hours, 17 minutes and 42 seconds. Gosh, the hour goes by quickly. I'm going to go backwards before I go forward because I want to get it all out of my system, all these things that I've been meaning to ask somebody like you. The, uh, the urban, no, the rural urban migration and its relationship to food security. And this is the sort of Mickey Mouse perception here. All the young people are so dying to do this sort of Dick Whittington, cities paved with gold thing, coming into the city, wanting places to stay, and agriculture suffers. Therefore, it must be by its nature bad. Well, that's not been, I think, the experience of pretty much every country which has developed globally. So how has it developed? To explain. Well, urbanization is a basic fact of life. Um, it's something to be welcomed and to be channeled, because that's how countries uh, develop and become rich and sustainably develop. And uh, we see, again, I'm going to go back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia made the decision to, to urbanize as the only way really to break the cycle of famine. Um, I think that was an important decision for them, but they looked at what they needed to do to reform what's happening in rural areas as well. And I think that's a pathway that all African governments are thinking about. Remember, Africa is already 50% urban. And that will only continue, right? There's, that proportion is going to rise. But then that creates opportunity, creates markets, it creates value addition. You know, farmers have somewhere to sell, right? There's that the wealth created can then lead to infrastructure and so on. So the question is, how do you join up what happens with you know, sort of rural development and agriculture and food with what happens in the cities? Okay, uh, so have I got it all off my chest? Uh, now we can go into solutions now because I, I derailed you in a way. Um, you were heading to all the things that could represent solutions and, and build up to a sort of final papal word to our listeners about how they might join the struggle for food security in Africa. Okay, so I think the thing I really want to say is, is that the solutions exist and they're not outside solutions and we should be very careful about you know, uh, let's say some ideological approaches coming in from the outside. Um, it needs to be African solutions, African leaders, African scientists who, who drive and lead all of this, right? So the great thing is, is that all of that does exist. 
you know, the technologies exist, the know-how exists, um, the leadership exists, not always at the same time, right? But the only way you, that you're going to be able to change things is by bringing those together, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to, you can't just drive it from government or from private sector or, or, or even just leave it to the farmers. You have to look at everybody who's involved in food, right? It's a, it's a horrible, trendy word to use sometimes, stakeholders, but people have a stake in this. People have a stake in what they eat, uh, how it's produced, how they make money from it. So you have to bring people together, right? Um, we have to change the way in which we trade with each other across the continent. So that free trade area I mentioned is going to be crucial. Africa has the ability to feed itself. If you send the right signals, if you're able to encourage that kind of investment, Africa can start by feeding the continent and can make an awful lot of money by selling to the rest of the world as well. So I, I think, you know, that the challenge that we have right now is, I, I, you know, we're, we're struggling right now with inflation, with cost of living. People don't know how to, you know, how, how they're even going to buy the groceries this week. And that puts huge pressure on governments. So governments do have to address that. But we also see climate change getting worse and worse. We see the challenges that we've talked about getting worse and worse. So you can't walk away from that changing that fundamental and I dare way say that in which we work. Climate change is unpredictable. So you're saying something, if you're listening to the English language, you're saying something is worse and worse, mm -hmm. but which we can't predict. We cannot predict the floods, that, the monsoon floods that are going to put a third of Kenya underwater next day. So how, does, how do governments mitigate for the unforeseen? Mm -hmm. So let me give you the example of Bangladesh. So Bangladesh, as you know, has its challenges and has had for ages, right? So you'd get these typhoons. Now, in the 70s, there was a huge typhoon that killed a quarter of a million people and destroyed the agriculture of that country and the rural, basically, a lot more than that. When um, a typhoon, a major typhoon came along, what, I think five or 10 years ago, the transformation was incredible. Uh, tragically, uh, you know, two or 300 people died. But the point is the country had become more resilient. Almost every different part of that country had become resilient. There were people to go to, there were places for people to go to take shelter. Um, there so were things so, which you can do to protect so your land and your there's buildings. A, there's a key word there, resilience yes. and building it. So do expand. So there are multiple things you can do. Um, sort of the, first of all, getting your biodiversity and your environment right. Um, the natural environment matters hugely. So, for example, if you allow floodplains to exist, you know, when the floods come, the water spreads out and it doesn't kill everybody. Whereas if you take away the trees and the, you know, you change the way in which the rivers flow and so on, sometimes it creates these, these catastrophes. You can build early warning systems. So you, you're saying that you can't predict. So, yes, it's very hard to predict an individual storm. But you can get a sense of when it's coming a crucial day or two earlier. And you can have much harder infrastructure, which allows you to deal with that. You can have raised buildings, you know, where people can go and shelter. You can weatherproof storage facilities and so on. You can have social safety nets. So there is an awful lot you can do. I mentioned earlier, if you're using climate um, resilient seed, it's a huge game changing technology, which means that you're not a victim you know, in the same way that you might have been in the past, you know, to a, um, a different uh, rainy season. So there are multiple things that you can do to make things more resilient and, and to allow people to bounce back quicker and better. Is there, we've got one minute to mm. say, in your experience, uh, priorities, we've talked about education, we've talked about uh, exposure, we've choice. For the continent, remember with the image of mm -hmm. the continent, mm -hmm. uh, for us who love Mother Africa, what is the what should be the number one priority with regard to attaining f continental food security? Would you be so? <laughs> I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't. I won't be stuck with one. But change the way in which you think about food. Think about where it comes from, right the way to the time it's con uh, consumed and, and disposed of. It changes everything. Number two, uh, concentrate on your leadership and your coordination of the development of agriculture. It, it's 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 hugely necessary. Three, welcome the private sector, bring it in. Fourth, listen to the farmer, give them choice, let them build their businesses. I left something out. I left something out. Uh, sometimes what is it? What is it? What is it? Sometimes <laughs> we, we eat things. We we eat things like ugali, which are staples. 
but very refined. And again, when they go into the lab, they don't do that much for us nutritionally. You've got to have much more diverse diets. It's more affordable. It's better for your body. It gives you better health. <laughs> transforms the education. Governments have a huge role to encourage that. So does the so private sector. Advertising campaigns, publicity yeah, public campaigns. Health, yeah. So telling people don't eat ugali from now on. Eat more, no. veg <laughs> eat more vegetables, eat more beans. You right. know, I mean, yeah. yes, it has, yeah. you know, there are good examples of how that can work. Right. So uh, we have to unveil, reduce, demystify <laughs> a kind of, would you be so kind as to tell me, to tell our listeners what your name is and what you do and further uh, it's always because we've got a very young listenership, uh, up to my understanding. Uh, how is it that one becomes a developmental expert like you? <laughs> so your my, name first. My name is Andrew Cox. Mm. Uh, I work for AGRA, which yes. is an African, proudly African, uh, agricultural organization working currently in 11 countries, but supporting many others remotely. Uh, Agra believes that we can transform uh, Africa's food systems. So what I would say to your question, uh, John, is that farming can be a huge direction and so can development for young people. Um, we need entrepreneurs. We need people who are able to think about technology and how to leapfrog the, the problems that others maybe found it very hard to get past. So the, the solutions are there. People talk about it on social media all the time. There are so many youth entrepreneurs out there and those whose example I would say is the right ones to follow. The tag to that is that how did you become you? Again, think of the parental thing. I want my child, my son, my daughter to become the next Andrew Cox and have a good UN job <laughs> <laughs> and a wonderful retirement package. <laughs> well, I think it's about, uh, certainly for me, it was about passion. And it was about a, what did you a do vocation. What did you do educationally? What did you decide? What did you do for your A level? So for my first for my first degree, I did business, um, a business degree. Yes, and then secondly, I did a development degree for my for my MPhil. Right. Of course, that's the learning. But right. uh, going out there and doing it, that was my passion. And I think passion goes a very very long way. So okay, passion. But let, let's go back. A lot of us have uh, children who um, have degrees and MPhils. Uh, did you find that the job market was just saying, oh, my God, where is a person like, is this a go-to area to uh, to encourage our children to do the same? So you've said business degree, go for it. Uh, development degree, go for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think students when they're looking at what they want to do, have the same questions, whether they're, I don't know, thinking of going into teaching or if they're going into uh, development or if they're going to go into business or, or whatever. I think it's what people want to do and where they feel their skills are. They hope they can find jobs along the way. But again, I want to take it back to farming and food. This is where opportunity exists, um, being able to use technology, using digital tools, make money. It's going to, it's the only way is up for agriculture in Africa. And I think, for that reason alone, it's something for young people to think about as they go into their education. So we have to stop there. Uh, do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya, or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to development expert Andrew Cox, and you've been listening to John Sibiokumu on Wednesday. Much obliged. Until next time. <laughs>